Thank you, John. Good morning to everybody. Great to be together today. Really is, and what a blessing. Thank you for all the prayers you have uh, offered up to God on behalf of my wife and I while we were gone, and especially during her illness. She is well, but uh, suffering that fatigue after uh, that particular illness, and so she, we thought it might be a good idea for her to just stay home and rest today. Still a little cough, but or some, something of a cough, but nothing like it was. She's well, and uh, I never got sick, so very, very thankful for that. Good to be with back with our family today. You know, my wife said, uh, you know, it's one thing when you get sick and you're at home, but when you're 1,100 miles away and you get sick, that's a whole different matter. And uh, so it was interesting spending Christmas in a bedroom because we both had to quarantine for several days. But uh, our family was right there for us and, and took care of us and fed us and everything. And we knew our family here was praying for us. And we thank you so much for that. Your prayers are powerful and your prayers worked. You know, Mark and I, we talk a number of times uh, after he has presented his class, and then he'll come up to me and say, um, you know, your bulletin article, or maybe even before class, he'll say, you know, like this morning, he said, your bulletin article goes right along with my Bible class. And maybe after he has taught the class, I might come up to him and say, my sermon's about what you were dealing with in your class today. We virtually never talk to each other about what either he is going to be teaching in Bible class or what I'm going to be preaching on. But providence, perhaps, you know, behind all of that, they just kind of blend together over and over and over again. And so when he told me today that your bulletin article really goes along with what I'm going to be teaching in Bible class, I didn't know what he was going to be teaching in Bible class today. And I said, yeah, my sermon's going to touch on that as well. And he said, I figured it might, you know. But again, you know, God's providence. God's providence is powerful. Well, I appreciate his lesson this morning, and I encouraged him to continue that next time. When we think about where things are as you come to the end of a year and you begin a new year, I like the idea of looking behind and then also looking ahead kind of looking through the rearview mirror and then through the windshield. What has passed? What is coming? What does the future hold? And of course, we don't know exactly what's going to happen as we go through life uh, day by day, let alone month by month or year by year. But we know from experience that, that things happen. And so I want us to think about a particular line of thought that is laid out for us in the scriptures. And I appreciate John reading that particular text from Mark chapter 4 a few moments ago. And I want to get to that in just a moment. But I want to lay the groundwork first and talk about, you know, problems. Whether next year is profoundly better for each one of us individually than this last year has been, or whether it's worse. We don't know, but we do know what the solutions are to get through whatever might be ahead. And to seek God's blessings upon us as the, as the weeks and months start to unfold before us. Problems? Anybody not have problems in your life? Every one of us has problems, don't we? And they, they change, don't they? 
We get new problems as the days and the months, yeah, the weeks and the months and the years go on. We, we, we experience problems. I, 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 for many, many years, long before I ever moved to Omaha, I tried to get across the point, and not always just in a, in a worship setting or Bible class setting, but just in a, in a more secular setting. You know, we talk about stress, and you hear things, you know, stress, how bad that is for you and everything. I said, look, there is no such thing as no stress in your life, unless you're catatonic, and you don't know what's going on. And we don't know for sure how conscious they might be, you know, mentally, internally of what's going on, even in a catatonic state. But you buy a new car, you turn the ignition key or hit your fob the first time to start that engine, that's stress that you just put on that engine. You get up in the morning, you wake up, you get up and you start moving toward the bathroom or toward the kitchen, whichever one's going to be your first destination, you're already putting stress on your physical body. There is no such thing as a life without stress, no matter what the infomercials try to tell us. How we deal with it is what's important. Now, problems, again, it's a reality of life. Everybody has problems. You say, well, well, I wish I could be a little kid again. Little children have problems. They have problems growing, developing, learning, discerning good from bad, right from wrong. <clears throat> Teenagers, young adults have plenty of problems. Do you remember when you were a teenager? Do you remember when you were a young adult, if you're no longer a young adult? If you're a young adult right now, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Problems abound. Choosing and preparing for the right career, getting through school, getting through your technical training, your professional training, all kinds of social and relational pressures. What about those things they call hormones? Oh, yeah. And then think about the the drug culture that is, is ever more pressing around us and alcohol and social media. More and more we're learning about some of the problems, the problems that are caused upon our culture through social media. And then adulthood, when you think about children, when you think about teens and young adults, when you get into adulthood and adulthood starts to develop through the years, probably offers the greatest potential for the greatest number of problems that we'll face in life. Got to be responsible to go to work every day, don't you? To provide for yourself, for your family. Got to raise children, and almost all adults end up having children as they get married. All kinds of unexpected problems come along, sometimes financial, sometimes medical, sometimes relational. And then there's that challenge that we all face called growing old, and it's out there for every one of us. We may not like to think about it, but it's coming, or maybe for some it's already being experienced. But again, it's not just the idea that there are problems there. That's a reality of life, but often how we handle our problems cause even greater problems, even greater problems. So let's say a problem hits us square in the face. What do we do with it? How do we deal with it? Do we, do we face it head on or do we fall apart and let it crush us emotionally or psychologically or relationally? 
Or do we try to face our problem head on? Or do we try to face it alone? Or do we seek some kind of help, some kind of counsel from somebody who might be able to help us? Now, maybe that would be a family member, but maybe not. Might be a friend, eh, maybe. Or maybe someone knowledgeable, someone who's gone through that kind of problem already. Or maybe someone we just look at and we understand without even, without even necessarily talking to them about that particular quality in their life because of the way they exhibit their life, because of the way they live. We understand that person has wisdom. And, and so maybe we might go to them and say, listen, can you help me with, with something? I'm, deal, I'm trying to deal with it. I'm not sure how to deal with it effectively. But you know, the greatest source we can go to in those situations is God through prayer and through his word. Are you trying to deal with your problems in that way? There's a great song and Occasionally, I'll ask whoever is leading singing to lead kind of an introduction song into the sermon because of the, the, because of the subject matter, and I know a particular song that really fits. And there is one for this one. It really fits. But I did not ask Mark to lead that particular song because it's a rather challenging song to lead. But it's Master the Tempest is Raging. I want to read the first verse here. Master, the tempest is raging. The billows are tossing high. The skies are shadowed with blackness. No shelter or help is nigh. Carest thou not that we perish? How canst thou lie asleep when each moment so madly is threatening a grave in the angry deep? The winds and the waves shall obey thy will. Peace be still. Whether the wrath of the storm-tossed sea or demons or men or whatever it be, no waters can swallow the ship where lies the master of oceans and earth and skies. They all shall sweetly obey thy will. Peace be still. Peace be still. They all shall sweetly obey thy will. Peace, peace be still. That particular song comes from what John read a few moments ago. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through, 31, uh, through 41. Now, the fact is that we need to learn a, that simple truth that is conveyed not just in that, so, in that song. That song is simply reiterating what's already in the scripture text. We need to understand we're getting ready for a new year. We've come through the rigors and the turmoil and the challenges of this past year. And undoubtedly, there were many blessings in that year as well. But there are always rigors and challenges and problems that confront us in every year. And as we come to the beginning of this next year and for the rest of our lives upon this earth, we need to understand that the principle laid out not just in that song, but in the scripture text from which that song is taken. No waters can swallow the ship where lies, the master of oceans and earth and skies. And we're talking about ultimately God, but the specific application is to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse 35. 
The text reads, as John read a few moments ago, but I want to take a little bit of time on it. On the same day, Jesus had been teaching. And so they're ready to cross over the sea. On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, to his, to his disciples, let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great storm, windstorm, arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. Now, I'm not sure I could imagine a more terrifying set of circumstances than being in an open, rather small boat, and all of a sudden there's a mighty storm, the winds are raging, and the billows of the sea, the waves are, are washing into the boat. I'm going to be looking for a bucket. I'm going to be looking for a hat. I can take off a cup or something. I start bailing that water if it starts to get too threatening because I'm not a great swimmer. Well, that was the situation on that boat. It was nighttime. It was dark. The storm was raging. The waves were washing into that boat. And I'm sure the apostles were trying to bail water as, as fast as they could but the boat was filling up with water. And so what did they do? Great storm arose, the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling, but he, speaking of Jesus, he was there in the boat, but it says, the text says he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And so he was sleeping somewhere down away from the open deck apparently, and apparently, from a physical perspective, he did not know what was going on. He was resting. Have you ever thought about how fatigued Jesus must have been at times on certain days when he was spending a great deal of time teaching people, dealing with the sick, healing them, trying to teach the multitudes, moving from one area to another? And so he's sleeping. And so they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They might have thought he knew what was going on, but he was asleep. Do you not care that we are perishing? That he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the text says, and the wind ceased and there was great calm. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Interesting Two questions, isn't it? Those who were closest to him as he was going through this particular period of his physical life and they through theirs, they knew who he was. They believed in him. I, I'm, I'm sure they did not really understand, completely digest all of the reality of who he was at that time and still is. But they knew him. They'd seen the miracles. They had heard the teaching. And so he says, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? I'm right here with you. You are with me. Where's your faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so in that song, Master, the tempest is raging. The chorus keeps emphasizing that very point. 
No waters can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and earth and skies. Think about that. Think about that. If Jesus is on board in your life, then he'll see you through. That does not mean, that does not mean that he's going to make everything bad not happen. That he's going to completely eliminate all the challenges and problems in your life. But he'll see you through. We need to understand that. Job was a great example of this truth. We go back to the Old Testament days. If we're walking with God, if we're walking with God through Christ, no waters can swallow the ship where lies, the master of oceans and earth and skies. Jesus demonstrated that to his apostles in a physical way in that boat during that night of darkness and storm. But much more profound, is the understanding that from a spiritual perspective, as we go through life, if we're walking with him, he'll be walking with us. When they woke him up and he, he rebuked the winds, ordered everything to be still, peace, be still. Then he turned to the apostles and said, what's wrong with you? Where is your faith? And they learned a great lesson that night, I'm sure, about their faith and about how no waters can swallow the ship where lies the master of oceans and earth and skies. You think about Job chapter 1 and verse 1. <clears throat> the text introduces us to this man, wealthy man. This may have been the very first book of the Bible that was ever written down because of some of the the patriarchal kind of, of, of images that are presented in it. Now, we don't know that for sure, but it may have been the very first one that was actually written down. It talks about there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. What a great testimony to the character and the faith of and faithfulness uh, faith of Job and faithfulness of Job as well. Two different words about faith. He not only had faith in God, but he lived faithfully. He was one who, who respected God, held, held him in awe, and he shunned evil. He tried to stay away from sin. And then in verse 8, after the devil had presented himself to God, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And Satan challenged God, let me work him over. I'll get him to curse you to your face. And so the devil went to work. He has his power limited because God said, okay, but you don't touch his body. And so Job began to work on, on, or rather Satan began to work on Job from an outward perspective. In one devastating day, Job's oxen, donkeys, and camels were stolen and his servants killed. On that same day, his sheep and more servants were consumed by fire. And on that same day, all of his children were killed when the house in which they were at that particular moment was destroyed by a great wind. But Job didn't curse God. 
Then he broke out with painful boils as the devil presented himself to God on a second day. And God said, see, I told you. Job has character. He has faith in me. And the devil said, let me work him over physically. And God said, you can't take his life. And so on another day, painful sores, burst, uh, boils, they, they, they broke out on his body. And the idea is all over his body from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. And the devil even, he even got, he even got his wife to challenge Job's faith and faithfulness. Why don't you curse God and die, she said. Give up this integrity that you, that you hold to. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, chapter two and verse seven. But we drop down to verse 21 of chapter one. Job arose, tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped Worship God after he had lost all of that, so much of his wealth, so much of his material possessions, and all of his children. And one day, he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And when the devil got his wife to tempt him even further, she said, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So many people, when problems face them, maybe tragedies, they lose their faith in God to a great extent. They become angry with God, shake his, their fist at him, curse God openly. That doesn't solve their problem whatsoever. It just distances them even more from the solution, from the strength that will see them through those problems. And so Job corrected his wife when she questioned him along these lines. His trust in God saw him through. You see, no waters can swallow the ship where lies, the master of oceans and earth and skies. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1 and verse 1. God created all that we see around us, all of that wealth that, God, that Job enjoyed for that period of time before he lost it all in one day. That was a gift from God. James 1 in verse 17, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights for, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Well, think about the apostle Paul. Paul was chosen by God to be an apostle, a divinely appointed apostle of Jesus Christ, and to do a mighty work of teaching and spreading the gospel. He's another example of this very truth. No waters can swallow the ship where lies, the master of oceans and earth and skies. The devil cannot beat us down. The devil cannot be victorious over us as long as we are walking with our Lord hand in hand. And I've said many times, 
as long as we're holding on to God's hand, God will never let go of ours. But we must be that dedicated. We must recognize that he is all-powerful and nothing is impossible for him. Luke 1 and verse 37. No matter what might be facing us. Look at these brief texts of scripture about what God was going to use Paul for. Acts 9 and verse 15, the Lord said to him, and this was to a Christian man named Ananias, who God was going to send to teach, the Lord was going to send to teach Saul of Tarsus. This was before he became a Christian. This was before he was appointed as a divinely appointed apostle of Jesus Christ. This was a challenging time for him when he thought he was trying to beat down Christianity. And so the Lord sent Ananias, he said, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. In chapter 13 in verse 2, they ministered to the Lord and this is after Saul who became Paul, ultimately the apostle. And so he was immediately starting to teach the gospel of Christ upon being baptized into Christ for the remission of his sins. He made a 180 degree turn in his life from a spiritual perspective. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul, who had become Paul, for the work to which I have called them, the work to which I have called them. And so the Lord sends Ananias to teach Saul and baptize him into Christ for the remission of his sins. The Holy Spirit says, separate Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. Verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now think about the work the mission that God through Christ set apart Saul of Tarsus who became, he was at that time initially an enemy of the church and disbeliever in Jesus, but now he walked with his Lord. He learned his mistake. He learned the error of his way. And he repented, he was baptized, the blood of Christ at that point cleansed him of the guilt of his sins. And God had a mighty mission for him that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth, a light to the Gentiles. And he began immediately teaching and preaching the gospel of Christ. Think about that. And we might say, oh, what a glorious mission God had for Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. Wrote more books of the New Testament than any other. Not more verses. We would give that to Luke. But more books of the New Testament than any other. But was it an easy road for him? Just because Jesus appeared to him on that road to Damascus and told him to go into the city and to be told what you must do, Just because Jesus sent that Christian brother Ananias to teach him the gospel and baptize him into Christ. Just because the Holy Spirit said, I want to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have have chosen. Just because God 
appointed him as a divinely appointed apostle of Jesus Christ and he began preaching and teaching the gospel of Christ immediately? Did that mean everything was going to be hunky-dory? Let me capsulize the challenges and problems that Paul faced. And I, I suspect we don't know all of them, but these are enumerated in scripture for us. On his missionary journeys, he was driven from Antioch of Pisidia. He fled for safety from Iconium. He was stoned and probably left for dead at Lystra. He was jailed in Philippi. He had to leave Thessalonica and Berea under duress. He had trouble in Corinth. He provoked a riot in Ephesus just by teaching the gospel. He was taken by a mob in Jerusalem and probably would have been beaten or stoned to death. But he was arrested by the Roman garrison and he remained a prisoner in Caesarea and Rome for possibly as much as four years. And look at all the other problems that he just kind of capsulizes or, or summarizes for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 22. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. He came from that, that ultimately messianic bloodline not to be the Messiah himself, but he came from that bloodline. He could trace his bloodline all the way back to Abraham. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. And then he says, in labors more abundant, in stripes, in stripes above measure. What's he mean there? He had been whipped so many times, he didn't remember how many stripes, how many lashes were laid across his back. One, from the Jewish perspective, from the Jewish authorities, one whipping would be 39 lashes. That's just one. He says stripes beyond measure. In prisons, more frequently, we don't know how many times maybe he was actually put in jail. We know a few of those times. But he says in prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. They're facing the ultimate possibility and maybe even the potential reality of death. He says, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. We only know of one time in the scripture record. A night and a day I have been in the deep in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles. He was persecuted a lot, you see. In perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils of the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger, in thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And then he laid out one more challenge, problem, that is not really fully understood by most, mem most members of the Lord's church. But it is understood almost immediately by those who preach the gospel, by those who are elders and deacons. 
besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Look at those problems. Yet Paul, he had learned the lesson. He had embraced that truth that he could get through all of that victoriously because no waters can swallow the ship where lies the master of oceans and earth and skies. The devil cannot destroy the eternal life of one who walks with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the master of oceans and earth and skies, in faithfulness consistently. Paul's desire was to glorify his Lord in his life in spite of his problems. Philippians 1, beginning with verse 19, he's facing the possibility of execution as a prisoner in Rome for the first time. But he thinks probably God's going to deliver him. He thanks the brethren for the prayers that they have offered on his behalf, and he expects, seems to be expecting that, that, that he's going to be released. And indeed he was. He says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, your prayers are powerful because of him to whom we pray. And we need to never doubt that. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ. I can go on serving him. And to die is gain. I can be in heaven with him. Even in the face of potential death, execution, in spite of those kinds of problems, his desire was to glorify his Lord in his life. His relationship with Christ, getting to heaven, was what mattered. What he suffered, he suffered for the cause of Christ. Philippians chapter 3, beginning with verse 7, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Walking with the Lord, God's peace can sustain you even in the face of the worst conceivable problems that might confront you in life. Paul went on in chapter 4, beginning with verse 4, he said, rejoice in the Lord always. Now, notice that key phrase of identity, in the Lord, as we're walking faithfully and consistently in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Through Christ Jesus. 
Because you see, no waters can swallow the ship where lies. The master of oceans and earth and skies, the creator himself. We drop down to verse 11. And Paul goes on and lays out another lesson for us. I can face any problem, any challenge, any difficulty in life through Christ. And he faced those challenges. Beginning with verse 11 in chapter 4, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, brought low. I know how to abound whenever things great everywhere and in all things, no matter the circumstances, in other words, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things not by myself and in and of my own power and ability. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And in spite of all, ending up in prison in Rome a second time, some years later, and at that time from his, the tone of his second letter to Timothy recorded in scripture, he seems to indicate, I'm not gonna be released this time. I'm gonna be executed and probably pretty soon. But in spite of all of that and all else that he faced and dealt with through his ministry, Paul could face even death with absolute confidence in his eternal life. Second Timothy chapter four, beginning with verse six, he writes to young Timothy, he says, for I am already being offered, poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, the ultimate eternal reward, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Oh. He lived that truth. Think of all those things, stripes beyond measure, deaths often, three times in the deep shipwreck, over and over, the riot in Ephesus, the persecution which drove him from city to city while he was preaching and teaching the gospel. So much happened to him. And he says, at death, going to be executed, executed in innocence, but nonetheless executed. He said, but hey, <laughs> finally I get to be with my Lord. Laid up for me the crown of righteousness, eternal life, my eternal home in heaven. So how are you facing your problems right now? How are you going to face those problems 2024, 2025 and the years ahead hold for you? Is the Lord foremost in your mind? Are you sailing in the ship with the Lord right there with you? Is he on board in your life? You can successfully overcome the problems. You can successfully resist the devil because you're going to be walking with, with, with the Lord. Now, James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, submit to God. Bottom line, you've got to come to God God's way. 
You've got to accept Jesus as your Savior, not just verbally, not just mentally, but in obedience, repenting of your sins, confessing your faith in him openly, and surrendering in baptism. So the blood that he shed on that cross for you so long ago will cleanse you of the guilt of your sins still today. Submit to God. And in submitting to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Make up your mind. Make up your mind. Sail through life with the Lord on board. And you can say, well, it's hard. Jesus said, look, I'm ready to give you rest. You can take on a new life with new assurance in the face of all the problems that might confront you if you'll let Jesus on board in your life. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And when you find rest for your soul, you'll find that life becomes a whole lot more peaceful for you as well. You can deal with it with with assurance. You can change your life. As Paul wrote, his life changed dramatically. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God's word can guide you. As to how, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. As you're baptized into Christ, that phrase into Christ is very profound in its meaning. You will be in him, but you need to walk with him. Not all of the apostles stayed faithful to Jesus in their walk through life. We know the one who turned from him and betrayed him, Judas, and ended up hanging himself as a result. You got to not just say the words, you got to live the life. Romans 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You take Christ out of that identity Christian, it leaves three letters behind. I-A-N. And someone has suggested that those three letters mean I ain't nothing without Christ. Where is your life centered? Where is your life centered? Remember what the apostles heard from our Lord. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And they woke up Jesus from the stern, sleeping in the pillow. He got up. He looked out at the storm. Peace, be still. And everything calmed down, physically around them. And then he turned to them. Where's your faith? I'm right here with you. Can you have that confidence? Because you're walking with the Lord right now. Because he 
is the master of the ship of your life. If he is, you can be confident. No waters, no difficulties physically, no difficulties that life might throw at you, no difficulties by way of temptations the devil might hammer you with can overcome you if you're faithful to the Lord. Because no waters can swallow the ship where lies, the master of oceans and earth and skies. If you need to come to your Lord today for baptism, or if you need the prayers of the church, please let us know as we stand and sing.